0: What's the worst thing you can say to anybody? Podcast you, Mister. That's really weird, you know? because if I want to hurt you, I should say unpodcast you, Mister, because podcast you is really nice, man. <laughs> I gotta say it's hard to do Hoffman doing Lenny. Could you do Lenny? I don't know well, that I feel I, I feel like, I I feel like the Hoffman the Hoffman thing is kind of right. I mean, this is almost the Hoffman thing. Right, and then and then the Lenny thing is a little. I I feel like I'm just going into uh, Cartoon Chipmunk there.
1: Yeah, I think when you're doing Lenny, you're just doing uh, Angry Jew, right? I'm you're doing just, yeah. You're just yeah. Like uh,
0: Hoffman, you're that's very specific. Oh, the, the Hoffman thing, but then you're trying to put Lenny onto Hoffman. It's 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 an interesting balance. Look, we love it when our guest uh, interjects before they're introduced. Yeah, our guest can just weigh in. I don't know if our guest has a Hoffman or a Lenny.
2: Oh, I always, I'm always ready to interject on this kind of stuff. I saw you holding back. Yeah, funny you said it because one of the biggest problems is over the years I feel like people trying to do Lenny. Yes. In in stand up, and so suddenly you have these people, and you know I watch a lot of Lenny Bruce, and um, and before the movie and whatever, you know I've listened to some old tapes over the years because. You know, he changed the game in so many ways. But him doing it at that time, you allow for a lot of pontification and you allow for a lot of dead air because he was changing the game. Yes. We weren't just watching, but once somebody does that structurally, everybody else's responsibility is joke, joke, joke in the middle of that structure. And so when I went to Lenny Boost, people were like, Oh, Lenny Boost wasn't that funny. Like a lot of comedians say that. I go, but it doesn't. What he did at that time was something else. You know what I mean? He
0: he was like the first modern comedian, and then other people figured out how to make that funnier and more entertaining.
2: Right, that's right. That, and by the way, that go Joe Ansis was apparently where he stole his whole style. Uh, sure. That was like Rodney Dangerfield's friend and his friend. And um, so they all love that guy. But the guy wouldn't get on stage, so fortune favors the brave. Somebody should have said that to Joe Ansis. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean... It is interesting to watch people steal that kind of style of Lenny Bruce. And it's just it's just it gets very didactic and and just a little bit pompous. And, you know, you just you know what I mean? It's too much sometimes. But when he did it, you have to give him a lot of slack, in my opinion. You know,
0: would you agree with my assessment? I was trying to do the math while watching this movie again last night. I feel like still conservatively, 25 percent of comedians are trying to do Lenny Bruce today. And they tend to be the most self-indulgent comedians working.
1: He's a whole quadrant of stand-up comedy, essentially, you're saying. Like, it, it all goes back that
0: way? Kind of, right? Or they're at least doing a distillation of Lenny.
2: Well, everybody everybody gets influenced by somebody in comedy. You right. have to be influenced yes. by It's like uh, that great line in uh, Manhattan when Woody Allen goes, you think you're God. He goes, I have to model myself into somebody. Sure. So better Lenny Bruce than, you know, some old-time... But uh, yes, I feel like he's had undue influence, not just on comedians. Now, here's what I'd like to attack all thinkers on comedy. Great. Here we go. Audience members, everybody. Because not just comedians, but this idea, this romanticized idea of tortured truth-teller is too much of me. Because here's the thing about comedy, in my opinion. Once again, something nobody says, in my opinion. (laughs) <laughs> you won't hear that on social media Is that comedy Like doctors first do no harm First make people laugh So if you're not making people laugh I don't even want to discuss I don't care if you have the most breakthrough Revelations that change the world Advertise as a philosopher So when people go to see a comedy show Get the babysit or whatever supposed to, You're supposed to elicit laughter That's the, what the advertisement for a comedian is so if you're not doing that, I don't care how brilliant you think you are. You're not, you're false advertising. You're not shocking people. You're not freaking them out. It's this whole idea of like, yeah, man, I had the bourgeoisie and an outrage with my, you know, my observations. They can't handle it. These middle-class morality, suburban, you know. And it's like, all right. That was, when Lenny Bruce did it, it's shocking. Truly. Right, right? 1960, you talk about the Catholic Church, you kind of got your ass beat to death. You know what I mean? And so I'm just saying now going after the Catholic Church, not that they don't deserve it, but don't act like I'll be on stage sometimes making some stupid Catholic Church joke, and a couple of people are like, whoa. And I'm like, Yeah, I'm really stepping out on a limb. I to watch myself. You <laughs> you don't have someone being like, All right, into
1: the paddy wagon with you right. like the minute Exactly.
2: Right. And that's the thing is this romanticized thing that it's like comedy is, you know, chain smoking tortured. Get laughs. And the highest form of it, in my opinion, again, is if you can say what you're trying to say and get laughs. So I'm not saying there are not different levels, but the laughter has to be there or it's not an even discussion, you know?
0: And if 25 percent of comedians are doing some derivation of Lenny Bruce, I think the bigger problem is 15 percent of comedians maybe take all of the wrong lessons from Lenny Bruce, not just in their act, but in their sort of how they view themselves and their personality, and this, like, I'm this radical disruptor, you know, I Sermon on the Mount, I need to, yes, the tortured, chain-smoking, black and white, like, when they're doing stand-up and they're bombing, they think they look like Dustin Hoffman in this movie, and someday <laughs> someone is going to talk about how misunderstood they were at their time.
2: Right, but that's also the responsibility of the people that have commented all these years, because people love that idea yes. of Lenny Bruce. And it's stuck as this archetype for everybody. And I love it. I mean, I get it. I'm in there. I'm like, this is cool. He's like a badass. By the way, Dustin Hoffman, Lenny Bruce, horrible. Wow. Dustin Hoffman is one of the most amazing actors of all time. He tried. Either you're a stand-up or you're not. You can't be not funny and be a stand-up. So Dustin Hoffman's going like this the whole movie, which is rule one of what I would never do. In, what I can't imagine anyone doing stand-up. He tells his joke and he goes like this kind of and nodding. smiles at the crowd. You're Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce was a badass and smiling like this. Like, hey, guys, are you in? That's a guy at a, you know, telling a joke at like a business conference. Like, I hope I get the <laughs> Lenny Bruce, whatever his faults were, he was a sexy kind of like, I don't care. Yeah, man. Like, and he was that guy. You know what I mean? He wasn't a guy that's up there like, hey, guys, are you in? You know,
1: I appreciate you saying that. Because I think with this movie, you you might watch it and come away with the basic take we're all talking about. Oh, well, Lenny Bruce, he wasn't that funny. And maybe the real answer is like, well, Dustin Hoffman is Lenny Bruce, isn't that funny? Lenny Bruce might have been funny, but Lenny Bruce through Dustin isn't that funny.
2: They said the guy that did the play Cliff Gorman was apparently yes. great. Like they had that play that it's based on. But when it came to the movie, they have to have Lenny, uh, Dustin Hoffman. Gotta get the
0: star. And and he's the fake Lenny in the Lenny within a movie in all that jazz. That's Bob Fossey's apology for not putting him in the film. He's very good in that. But again,
2: even what Bob Fossey chose because Bob Fossey's not funny. So he's the whole thing with comedy. Funny, funny, funny. If it's not funny, I don't care about the torture. It's fine. I, I get everybody wants me the to torture Every. But if I'm watching a movie about, you know, Oh, I don't know who that like uh what was that movie? So like the Elton John movie. Like Elton yeah. John, his life, it's interesting enough. It's interesting enough, but if you don't hear the songs, then you're like, why am I watching this movie about a guy that was on drugs and tortured? He's like everybody else. We all have ten people in our lives like this. Oh, yeah, the <laughs> guy. He's a great songwriter. So with every comedy movie, it's my bone in comedy in general movies and TV shows. Is if you don't have jokes that are if you don't curate the material correctly, then I'm not watching this guy the funniest. And it drives yeah. me nuts. You know? So that's part of my problem is like Lynn. Bob voice is like the death stuff is deep. I'm like, is it really Bob? Is it really? <laughs> is that it? Death, man. Death. It's like, okay. You know, that was that 50s, Ingmar Bergman and Woody and all of them were, They would just thought that made them deep to be into death. Speaking of you know archetypes, you know, they're like, yeah, we're into like death. And it's like, ugh.
0: It's too much. Death as a personality. Look, we're going to dig into all of this. Dig? Dig, man? Yeah. Dig. <laughs> Listen, uh, Dig, this is a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. It's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. Sometimes those checks clear. Sometimes they bounce. Man. It's a mini-series on the films of Bob Fossey. It's called Pod That Jazz Cast. That's right. And today we're talking about the film Lenny. And we got with us not just a comedian, but clearly a, a historian, an expert, a truth teller, dare I say <laughs> it, a modern philosopher.
1: Yeah. What, what is every euphemism for stand up comedian also that exists? Modern philosopher.
2: And look, all that stuff is great. That's
0: the highest form if you're making people laugh the whole time. Right. So, oh, so here's the main credit all list. Our guest today is funny. Yeah, that's it. And he he tells it. really good jokes and makes people laugh. That's it. Colin Quinn. By, by the way, you know, cabaret,
2: which I, did you already guys do already cabaret? We did yeah. cabaret, yeah. So did you ever hear that great story, the interview with um, Joel Grey, talking about Bob Fossey and how he, he want, Bob Fossey wanted to play the part. Yes, right. And then he said, it's either me or Joel Grey, because he thought they wouldn't take Joel Grey, and he took Joel Grey. And then the first day of rehearsal in Berlin, well, of course, he did a flip. Did you see that? Yes, yes. And he landed on his head in black and blue, and then he just, the rest of the time, just drew And he tried to cut Joel Grey out of the whole movie. Yeah, it's,
0: it's crazy.
2: Yeah, and that was before this movie. So, I mean, obviously, his judgment was, they were like, are you crazy? Joel Grey's a great part of the movie. So, judge, and he had no choice but to cast Dustin Hoffman. This is going to be
0: an anti-Dustin. It's going to turn into an attack on Dustin Hoffman, unfortunately. OK, here's here's what I want to say right off the bat, because I know this is it, it's sort of the common complaint of this movie throughout the comedy community is just he doesn't get the the sort of rhythms of being on stage correctly. It's such a sort of literal uh, impression. He's approaching it mm-hmm. very literally minded and, and he evokes him in a lot of ways. But the dynamic of him on stage interacting with a crowd never feels correct. And the other thing is fundamentally he's not funny. None of these routines are funny, right? Yeah, yeah. I would argue Hoffman does a good job with all of the sort of offstage stuff. But like 50% of this movie is, is actually having to do the routines. right? And I had the same feeling where I was like, look, I've never found Lenny Bruce personally very funny. I understand his historical importance. I think he's worth studying for these reasons. But watching the movie, I was like, man, he's really not funny. These routines suck. And then this, this morning, I put on Lenny Bruce live at Carnegie Hall. And I was like, mm. oh, no,
1: no, no, no. There's a reason this guy was well known. Yes. Yeah.
0: It's still not my favorite kind of thing.
1: It wasn't just that he got on stage and said, sucker, you know, like
0: he right. was he was a performer right. of renown. It's still, yes. it's still self-indulgent. You know, we, we've adapted the, the form has evolved since then. But you listen to him and it's like he has an innate sense of comedy that perhaps is not Dustin Hoffman's strong suit. That's exactly right. Dustin Hoffman can be a very funny comic
1: actor, right? Like Tootsie? I don't it know, can, right? But like it's, he's, it's a different he's, yeah, thing.
2: Yeah. It's a whole different ball game. and uh, like I said, the biggest crime to me is that that smile to the audience. I mean, I couldn't yes. even believe it. You know what I mean? But the material was Bob Boise doesn't know what he's looking at, maybe. You know what I mean? Because material-wise, yeah.
0: I feel like Bob Fosse himself admitted that he wasn't a fan of Lenny Bruce, didn't find him very funny, and was fascinated by, as you already called out, the looming specter of death, his number one favorite theme. Colin's body just shrugged. His entire body just sighed. Because I
2: don't even believe Bob Fosse's
0: looming specter of death, judging on his
2: behavior (laughs) in his life. I believe that people at that time had a fashion where they were like, I'm into death. And everybody's like, oh, this person's deep.
0: Yeah. I just don't buy it.
2: I think it's an affect.
0: I think he was very obsessed with the notion of what Lenny represented in terms of breaking down those walls and changing the vernacular, because Fossey was a guy who tried to rewrite dance in that kind of way and make things sexier, more tactile, more adult and more dangerous. But the actual comedy itself, I think by his own admission, he was never that interested in. He's really interested in Lenny as a figure in terms of what he represents.
2: That's right. That's what I, I think so, too.
0: And the other part of it, the other thing is like that Bob Fosse grew up playing these types of clubs, that he was this child dancer doing on lineups with burlesque dancers. Right. The entertainer thing, the backroom entertainer thing, that's, that's, that, that seems very funny. He, he loves the sad, dirty show people thing. He loves these terrible rooms and staying in the hotels and all that sort of shit. But then you get to the comedy of it, and he's just like, I don't, I don't know.
2: That's the whole thing. It's, it's like watching a musical without the music. I mean, if, right. you're not, if you're not watching a comedian being funny, then why are you watching this person? It's every other 10th person you know.
0: It is funny that this movie pretty much has the exact same structure as Cabaret, where it's like you're cutting in between this one sort of performance and these slivers of the life.
2: And But Cabaret was a masterpiece.
0: Yes. Well, because he's really good at doing musical numbers. This is the thing about Bob Fosse that people don't talk about that much. Very good at musical numbers. Yeah.
1: But that's my question to you, Colin. What's your, what's your overall Fosse feeling? Have you you know Is Cabaret, that's your favorite? How do, you, how do you feel about the Fosse filmography?
2: Well, what else was there? All that jazz I thought was good, except the death thing was corny. Um, <laughs> but I like, look, the beginning of all that jazz, when it's just quiet and then the music and they're stretching, I was like, that's masterpiece. Masterpiece.
0: Masterpiece. Uh, first movie, Sweet Charity, was Shirley MacLaine. Oh, did he direct that? He directed that. And then his last movie after all that jazz is Star 80. Oh, yeah, Star 80 was good. Yeah, Star 80 rules. But it's is one of the darkest movies ever made, arguably. It's a, it's, it's, it's a grim one. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. By the way, how good was Eric Roberts when he quotes to Cliff Roberts when he quotes the playboy philosophy at the party?
0: We're going to talk about. Eric Roberts' performance of that movie is one of the few times where you feel like this is actual just evil captured on camera. He was amazing, yeah. It's unbelievable. He never really shook it, yeah. But so overall, you do seem to like his movies. Yes, yeah. Yes. I love Bob But I wanted to to bring you up, because Colin, people don't know, you were secretly a major cinephile. You did a Criterion Closet video. That's right, you've been to the closet. Oh, Yeah. You've been to the closet. I watched, I watched this. I went, what am I doing? Let's, let's rope Colin in here. And I thought between your, your bona fides as a cinephile and your expertise, your strong-minded opinions on Lenny Bruce, which when I texted you to do this, you said, uh, Lenny Bruce looks like an open mic compared to me. That was your immediate response.
2: I'd like to be, you know, that's my, my persona. But yeah, Lenny Bruce was, no, of course, Lenny Bruce, like what you said, he changed the form. That's hard. You know, he changed the form and he didn't do it because it didn't need it. Like you could change the form when it doesn't need it to, but it needed it. And he changed it. And it was really interesting, you know, and I still say it's so funny because even among comedians, when we talk, there's nothing. One liner, people are so funny. Like you watch Rodney Danger, but some of these one liners have more truth in them than somebody rambling for 20 minutes and joke jokes are some of the funniest jokes ever. You know, joke
0: jokes, but... 100%. Yeah, pound for pound, Dangerfield, in my opinion, is the funniest person He's to ever funniest. do it. You just watch it every 15 seconds, something funny.
2: Well, he didn't write those most of them, but I mean...
0: Um, no, I know. I am know. Know. I'm, I'm just giving credit as a performer, as, as, a, as a brand, as a construction. Just funny. Well, funny is because
2: what he was saying and what he looked like and what he sounded like all was yes. t- perfectly consistent, you know?
0: Correct. You're like,
2: and uh, and the other outside thing is you're like, nobody really gets respect. So even though you're laughing at him for not getting respect, you don't feel like you get respect either. So it sort of keeps you in there. There's a
0: universality to it that he figured out. Right, right.
2: And uh, yeah, he was he was probably pound for pound the most, you know, consistently where he'd just show up and you'd be like, oh, I remember seeing Caddyshack, and at that time, Daisy was like an old-fashioned type comic. Yeah, and we're like, he's with Bill Murray, all these guys. Well, great thing about Caddyshack, Jaws might want to do that movie someday. Caddyshack have all these hip guys that we love, like Bill Murray and you know Chevy Chase and We're all stoned and smoking pot. There's all these references in the movie, Saturday Night Live, is like with the hippies. And in the middle of it, Rodney Dangerfield comes on, which we loved him because he was so funny. Ted Knight, who's this lame sitcom guy from Too Close for Comfort, comes on <laughs> and steals the movie.
0: Yes, yes. Yes,
2: I remember that gave me a great lesson when I saw that. I go, this guy's some squ-. I didn't even want to say, it. I go, what's this guy in the moon in the movie? He stole the movie. He was so good.
0: It's one of those things. I think that's a movie where I, I mean, when I saw it, when I was young, I, I didn't get Ted Knight's performance. And then the older I get, every time I rewatch that movie, you go, this, this is the most interesting thing happening in the movie. It is. He's incredible.
2: By the way, do you ever... Th- I mean, this r- would relate to Lenny Bruce and a lot of the movies. There was a scene that scene with Chevy Chase and Bill Murray that they just left in because they want to see with those two where he's golfing through and they talk about, you come by my house.
1: An inexplicable scene. It's the middle of the night. Chevy Chase is like, oh, I'm golfing.
2: Like, it doesn't make any sense. Right, yes. But but nowadays, they would say, cut that scene. It's not pushing the plot forward. It's not moving. And that's the kind of scene that I feel like every movie strives for in some way. Just these people being in a moment and you know what I mean? It's, I thought it was such a beautiful scene. I rewatched Caddyshack
1: recently. Cause I had not seen it since I was like a kid or whatever. And that movie is almost abstract. It is very yes. strange. It is weird that it was such became such a phenomenon. It doesn't have a plot. And it's ostensibly about these young guys, but then the young guys are sort of irrelevant to it. It's so strange,
0: yeah. No, but I think when they shot it, there was a much more conventional script that was like breaking away. That was really about the Michael O'Keefe character, and sometimes you had these fringe characters. And then that's a movie where they got so much good shit with the four elder the random statesmen. Random improvisers, yeah, exactly. That they were like right. cut Michael O'Keefe down to twenty minutes. Let's hit the basics of that plot, and it's just a hangout movie. But that they released it and it worked is just Yes, it yes. Totally worked. Yes. But,
2: and I'll tell you who was good. Speaking of side characters, Valley in and, and Lenny, I'm saying. Oh.
0: Speaking of other yeah. people, she was
2: amazing. Yes. Did she won the Academy Award. I don't know.
0: She was nominated. She won Best Actress at a con. It was
2: an impossible part because she had to live up to not only Lenny's expectations, but Bob Fawcett. She represented everything Bob He's obsessed with his whole life, other than death. And she was that good. Where you're like, every scene, you're like, yes! And I like the guy that played Milton Burrow, remember him? He's like, yes! <laughs> Put his hand on her leg. <laughs> it was good.
1: She lost Griffin to Ellen Burstyn for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Which is... Okay. And, it, and it's a great year. It's Fade the Away for Chinatown, Gina Rollins for Woman Under the Influence, and Diane Carroll for mm. Claudine. It's like but the thing is, she was nominated in lead, which she shouldn't. This is a supporting performance. She's not in a lot of the movie. And she won a lot of critics' awards in supporting.
0: And she might have won there, uh, but she w- whatever. She was run as lead. But so. you have, She's functioning like the narrator for a lot of the movie. I know she spends the middle chunk in jail. I know. She just doesn't have a lot of screen time. Sure. This is a question I want to ask you, Colin. Is there a performance of an actor playing a stand-up that you think gets it right? Or do you think it's fundamentally a thing that someone who doesn't have experience doing stand-up never gets that sort of dynamic, that energy, correct? For the at least the performance sequences.
2: Yeah, I mean I feel like I feel like it's it just goes to show like how everybody probably feels that way at their job. So whenever they see like you know, that guy wasn't a soldier, that guy wasn't a cop, she wasn't a hooker, like whatever your job is, you're like they can't fill the, you know, and they can't do it. Right. Even in those chick flicks, when they're like, "My presentation," they're like, "Oh, <laughs> she didn't work in a woman's magazine." You know what I mean? Like nobody gets it right. So I guess it, but uh, yeah, I've never seen. I mean, I can't even think of that many. But I mean, I've never seen. I feel like it's also that that relationship with the audience. Like he tried to do the audience thing, uh, right, Bob Fosse. But it's like, what would you do with an audience? I mean, I once to listen to an old Lenny Bruce tape from the 1950s that this guy Hal had, and it was uh, him yelling at this table and going, "Man, you people, why do they always seat you right there?" And I was just laughing because it never changes. And he goes, "And after the show, you're gonna go, we were helping you." And I was like, even Lenny Bruce had to deal with like the cliche people going, "We were helping you after the show." Yeah. And, uh, by heckling, you know, by talking. So I was like, it would be interesting to see somebody really get the essence of uh of the audience you know in a comedy show you know but uh but so far I feel like that's a big part of it it's almost like in between the audience and the comedian like almost that whatever's in between those two how would you capture that you know it's it's strange
0: it's 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 hard and I think even if the performer gets it right there's something about when you're staging stand up When you've hired people to be the audience, when they have to watch the performance many times, like it's it's a thing that I think, to his credit, Apatow was smart about in funny people, which is just send these people out to real clubs, put a camera in the back. Don't make the same crowd sit through the same routine multiple times. Just go to another club on another night, get a different audience and, and mostly casting actors who had some background in stand up.
2: Oh yeah, well, most of the people doing stand up with stand ups too, which is also the smart move. You know, you gotta, right. so you so, throw them out there; they're gonna be out there getting that competitive streak. Like, I know I'm in a movie, but I'm gonna get laughs from this crowd too. Screw this, you know what I mean?
0: The the Sandler scenes in particular, I think, have that energy that like you you can't capture. It's it's just yeah, it's it's not the same thing. When I, I mean, to your point about the smiling thing, right? When Norm McDonald died. I showed my father his roast, the Bob Saget roast set, right. Which, for my money, is just is one of the greatest uh, stand up performances ever. It's incredible. And my dad had never seen it, and I showed it to him. And I was trying to explain to him the context of it, right? Yeah. And I it's said, "It's hard to you actually know, set it up as like you don't understand
1: the roast works like this. He's doing something, you know, like all of that stuff, right? Yeah." And yeah, my
0: yeah. dad watches the other roast, so I said, "Just imagine, you know, before this is Lisa Lampinelli, just like hitting like three <laughs> right, pointers right, from right, half right. court, right?" Like everyone else is going so, so hard, so dirty, so mean. And he comes up. And the other thing I said was, look, when they put this on Comedy Central, they re edit it. They added in crowd reaction shots to make it seem like he was killing it. This is the unedited footage. And I showed it to my dad and he just turned to me halfway through. I was trying to explain to him because he was never really a Norm guy, like why Norm was important. And right. he turned to me and he went, this guy just didn't give a shit, huh? And I went, yeah, exactly. And he went like, that's. Fearless to get up there and tell jokes that corny yeah. when everyone else has been, and you just watch his face, and he just isn't affected at all by the fact that he's playing to abject silence. No, he, he knew it. Right. And it's that thing, especially when Lenny Bruce is like fucking rewriting the form with his bare hands. Right. He wasn't getting out there on stage looking for approval, which is that thing. It's, it's the actor insecurity, please love me thing that I think Hoffman has to. That's how he relates to the idea of being a performer. 100%. And
1: I'm sure he gets that. Right. Yeah, that's, that seems so inherent to Hoffman's,
0: yes. He can't think of not wanting to win their approval in that moment. And I'm, look, and I'm
2: sure Lenny, Lenny Bruce wanted laughs the whole time. Of Lenny course. Bruce never went out there to not get laughs. But like you said, it's the way, it's the way of being like, okay, this is where I draw the line. You guys got to meet me halfway. I'm not right. calling. You know what I mean? Or else it's not funny. The worst thing in stand-up, for, to, the guaranteed bomb, is anyone that goes out there needing. It. Anybody that goes out there and wants so badly for the audience to laugh, they withdraw. It's like a, it's like trying to, you know, get somebody attracted to you. If you go in like this, ah, they're like, get away from me. There has to be a little bit of, you know, yourself, your, yourself in there. Like, hey, I'm drawing my boundary too, you know? And I think that's what, the, yeah. Yeah, that, that was missing. But I don't want to put it all on him because a lot of it was, you know, the our favorite director, Bob Fosse. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, let's let's dig into how this movie
1: got made. Yeah. So this movie obviously is coming right after Bob Fosse is just the most enormous success. He wins Best Director for Cabaret at the Oscars. He wins Best Director at the Tonys for Pippin. And he wins best director at the Emmys for Liza with a Z, all in the same year.
0: Yeah, he's the the first and still only person to essentially get the directing triple crown.
1: Right. In one year. In the same year. Yeah. And his reaction, which seems very Bob Fossey, is to enter a state of massive depression. Right. Which, you know, that 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 you know that makes that that tracks with his entire sort of creative process, basically.
2: But he was also, I only know because Probably a few years later, and I was a lot younger. I used to eat massive amounts of speed and chain smoke. And believe me, when you're not when you're not on the crest of it, you're in a depression. Sure, <laughs> right,
1: right, right. I mean, that makes sense. He's he's so high low, yeah. And ranking, who's his girlfriend? You know, obviously, uh, we'll mm-hmm. talk about her more uh, in all that jazz. But she she brings up this Looney Tunes cartoon called Showbiz Bugs where Daffy and Bugs Bunny are in competing acts. The audience loves Bugs. Daffy keeps trying to outdo him, and he can't. And Daffy figures out the only way he can do it is to blow himself up. And the audience goes wild. Bugs loves it and claps. Daffy, his ghost floating up, says, I know, I know, but I can only do it once. And Anne Ranking is like, that's
0: Bob Fosse. Like, she's on his
1: cartoon.
0: I just had to read that quote. It's so good. Yeah. That's a good quote. Yeah. And it's one of those things. I mean, there's sort of the the whole episode of Fosse Verdon, the, the series, which I highly recommend if people aren't watching it or haven't watched it before this. There's the episode that's all about this insane year for him that ends with him in a mental health clinic. Like he just had a complete psychotic break. And it is that thing. Yes, obviously aided by living a fast lifestyle, taking speed, chain smoking, you know, all his vices and whatever. But I think for a guy like that, when you start elevating to higher and higher highs, it only creates a greater distance you can fall. Well, then a guy like that, anybody.
2: Yes, absolutely. Any athlete, any star high school athlete, and then in college you're on a bench and everybody else goes on, you know, it it rocks your world, you know? And
0: and I think Lenny Bruce was so, uh, I I, I said Lenny Bruce, Bob Fosse, but I think uh, uh, similarities here, what he's sort of relating to uh, Bob Fosse was so self-hating and always felt so unworthy of love and was constantly chasing love in all areas but never actually feeling loved.
2: But wait a minute. Name the percentage of people that don't, that, that does not describe. Oh, every. The whole world. I'm saying welcome to the, that's <laughs> what I'm saying.
0: Welcome to the world, Bob. Absolutely. But I think when you have a year where everyone's fucking lauding you as a genius, the his reaction to that is, you fucking phonies, you pieces of shit. I'm a phony, I'm a piece of shit, you know?
2: I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know if I bought it.
1: (laughs) His reaction to this is, he checks into rehab, Uh, he doesn't like it, he says he didn't like lithium because it killed his sex drive, and uh, (laughs) he said, I knew it was time to check out when I started putting on shows for the other inmates. Uh, So then he comes out, he's got three things going, Griff. Mm -hmm. He's got the little prince, uh, which is sort of this passion project uh, that Stanley Donan is working on. You you love that book, right, Griffin? That's that's a big thing for you, The Little Prince, the children's book.
0: Yeah, but but he, so he's in that movie as an actor. He plays the snake. Was was he at one point supposed to direct it or produce it or something? Well, he choreographed that
1: sequence, I believe. Sure. And uh, Donan at one point gave over a lot of control to him for that. But I guess, I guess that's all he works on. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Ha- have you ever seen that movie, Colin? It's incredibly bizarre. It's, it's a Learner and Loeb, Little Prince adaptation that Stanley Donan did in the 70s with Bob Fosse and Gene Wilder. It's inc- and, and a child and a child in the middle of the desert. I, I love it. But it's yeah, it's bizarre. And there's like 10 minutes of the movie that Fosse just uh, takes over and it becomes Fosse and head to toe black leather in the desert, uh, seducing a child <laughs> like the snake in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> Bob Fosse plays the part. Bob Fosse plays the part. It's incredibly bizarre.
1: The other thing, obviously, is Chicago, which they're trying to turn into a movie. Doesn't happen. Uh, they intend that to be Gwen Verdon's return to Broadway, I guess. Like, I guess they, they want to do it on stage you know whatever that that's all going on and then Lenny
0: cuz they they bought the rights to the original film and play and yeah right there's this whole thing right where they're fighting
1: for the rights for it. anyway and then Lenny had been on Broadway Cliff Gorman as you as we mentioned he wins the Tony for the stage play and he basically sees this play and it's like I can do this as a little movie and no one will you know people will not be on my back about it right like mm-hmm. <laughs> he rather than rather than try and cash in the big check post cabaret. He's like, well, I can absolutely understand how this would work as a movie, and like, you know, I'm just gonna do it. I'm just gonna do it as a very small movie, and you know, I guess that makes sense. It, it but it does seem like you say it does seem weird that like he he's not that transfixed by Lenny Bruce. No, like we're saying, like he's more just interested in like. Uh, you know the 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 intimacy of it and the shock of it. I guess like I I, I don't think he's he he's not a comedy guy, Bob Fosse. Like you know he, right he, he has he has no interest in that world.
2: But as we found out in Fosse Burden, his best friends Neil Simon and Paddy Chayefsky.
0: Yes, right. It, it is my so favorite probably, thing about that yeah. show is that Paddy Chayefsky is is like LeBron James and Trainwreck that it's like, what if your best friend in this romantic comedy saying, like, you're fucking it up,
2: Bobby? Oh, I loved it. That was the reference.
1: As he's researching Lenny Bruce, he's reading all these interviews with him, and he has the idea of, like, okay, that can be the format of the movie, right? It's basically Mm -hmm. question and answer, trying to dig into, like, who was the real guy, this sort of Rashomon approach, talking to different people who knew him. The movie is written by Julian Barry, who, I mean... Wrote the play. the play and, you know, all that. And they bring in Dustin Hoffman because Fosse wants Cliff Gorman, but the studio is like, absolutely not. The studio is United Artists, I think. And they're like, you need a movie star. Pacino was actually Fosse's second choice. Okay. But he turned it down. And Hoffman is the third choice and Fosse negs him throughout. Basically, Fosse the whole time is like, look, you weren't my pick. Sorry. You know, I hope you'll be okay. But like, they do not have a good relationship on set at all. And oh, interesting. At one point, Hoffman told Fosse he'd worked out a walk for his version of Lenny Bruce. And Fosse replied, I wish you wouldn't do that. The last five performances of yours degenerated into a walk, which is a weirdly wow. specific burn where I guess he's saying like too many, you know, too much of that bullshit from you. Where is Hoffman? I mean, because like, obviously, The Graduate and... Midnight Cowboy, that's that's the late sixties, but like I guess right. since then he's done like little big straw man. dogs, little big man, papillon, like you know, not not maybe not quite as big movies.
0: Well, and then I mean it's it's uh, fifteen years later, but Rain Man is absolutely a performance that is walk forward.
2: <laughs> well, that's a good thing about Doesn't Help. He's like, I don't give a shit what he said. I'm still going I'm doing my thing. I'm doing my walk <laughs> right. right, right. But of course my guy, his whole, his whole thing is dance. He's going to notice your walk. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because I feel like right
1: after this, then it's the real Hoffman run, you know, of all the President's Men, Marathon Man, Straight Time, Kramer versus Kramer, Tootsie. Like, it's right. all his, you know, dominant late 70s, early 80s stuff. Like, he, he
0: slows it way down in the 80s. Right. Kramer right. versus Kramer, 79. He wins the Oscar. Then Tootsie is three years later. Then Ishtar is five years later, and then then he wins the second Oscar for Rain Man. Like, his 80s are very bizarre. But I think there was that thing with him post-graduate where he was strategically picking roles to zag as far away from graduate as possible. I think he has talked about this, that he, like, really didn't want Benjamin Braddock to be his movie star persona. So it's like, let's just blow it up every time. Like, what are the genres you wouldn't expect to see me in? Ratso Rizzo was like a real statement of intent. You know, I think Straw Dogs was like he was trying to go to darker places. He was trying to be edgier. He was trying to work with more provocative filmmakers.
2: What I love him. I mean, he's amazing. But I do think that uh, that he was a guy that I admire all those kind of guys that you just couldn't see as movie stars. And suddenly they were the movie stars when I was a kid, you know? Like, they were just these all smaller guys and kind of, you know, they just blew it up. I mean, him and Al Pacino and and De Niro even. De Niro wasn't, like, some handsome guy. He was a weird-looking guy for a movie guy, you know? And they all became big stars, you know?
1: Colin, did you see Lenny in theaters? Like, is that – I mean, you would have been, what, like a teenager or something, right? No, I would have been.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I was still a little young for that, but I mean – Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, uh, no, I wish I had seen. It It sounds like that was the one to really judge everything by, you
0: know,
2: like material-wise.
0: Yeah, it's also the thing of like, not only did these guys become unconventional movie stars, but Hollywood was in such a state of upheaval that like anything they wanted to do would get greenlit, regardless of how risky it seemed, because they didn't know exactly what the audience wanted. Like they were chasing a very amorphous younger audience. So this weird reality of like, If if Dustin Hoffman wants to do a Lenny Bruce biopic, it's a go picture. It's as easily greenlit as any fucking action movie The Rock wants to make. Obviously, it's a budget, But the fact that this movie ends with his dead body on a floor, like the fact that the whole movie is living in like the slums of this guy's depression doesn't matter. They're like Hoffman. Anyone will go see anything he does.
2: But that's his. Yeah. Plus, there were so many future options in those days. But here's the problem. If I go to see a movie about a comedian and I'm not laughing about the whole movie that's a tone like I said that's the narrative the romanticized thing everybody wants now comedy it's really dark behind the lights it's as dark as a sanitation department it's as dark as electrical <laughs> engineers you understand it's all the same there's not some you know what I mean this is ridiculous it's been driving me crazy my whole career no, but, but they're they're like, Colin, oh. don't you understand? They
1: make us laugh, and yet they are sad. You know the duality there. It's just so
2: incredible. Believe me, I understand. <laughs> I understand as well as everybody else what the you know what the thing is the dichotomy between on stage and off stage and how you feel a certain way. But again, once again, every job. You don't think nurses go? Nobody cares when I feel pain. I'm working all the time on pain. That's <laughs> just life. You know, it's too much. But people get, it thrills everybody, you know?
0: Whoa, you know? Just because this isn't a visual medium, people are only going to get to hear the audio of this. I just want to say, Colin is expertly leaning into the camera as punctuation on the Zoom to hit your punchlines on jokes.
2: Yes, yeah, and that's the key. The key is what you said before. The real key to comedy, yes, material, all that, your, your, your mind, what your angle is. But what you said about Norm MacDonald is the key. If you really care that much, it's not funny. And why Norm was so funny was because he wanted laughs. He worked hard, but at a certain level, you're like, "That's as far as I can go." I don't give a shit that much. Where I'm going to have this be dictated, you know? And-, and and I
0: I I think I mean I just watched the the documentary that uh, Apatow did for HBO, but like. Carlin really, it feels like, took everything that Lenny Bruce set up and figured out how to add more jokes into it, while still trying to speak to profound truths and challenge authority. You know, but it's like there were actual jokes there. Like he was a comedian first and foremost. A comedian, yeah. And Lenny Bruce, like you said, will never
2: like live and of was different. He was still indulgent, but in those days, the indulgence was almost part of the journey. That people wanted to see because it's like, how did you move from punchline one liners to this? So, you know, I bet it was I bet it was a different journey in those days to watch as an audience too. you know,
0: just to hear someone slow it down that much seemed radical because every other guy is just doing one liner, one liner, one liner. So you
2: almost want to watch that journey like to us now it's indulgent, it's shorthand. But back then, maybe that was part of it. I don't know, you know.
1: All right. Valerie Perrine. She's in this movie. Raquel Welch apparently was considered for this role. Jill Robinson. Names I don't know. Joey Heatherton. Janice Lind. She seems like kind of a wild person. At one point, she shaved her pubic hair into a heart in preparation for the stripping sequence, called Fosse into the dressing room, and said, I have a heart on for you. Stuff like that. A lot of stories like that in these of of wild behavior we talked about uh you know jan minor who plays fos uh lenny's mom sally marr the real sally marr wanted to play the role herself oh wow fossey thought about it because he's like she's so unique that it would be obviously amazing to capture it but he said he thought it would feel like weird and cheap especially since lenny bruce was dead like the you know he didn't want to like you know and then Sherman Hart is basically playing a Milton Berle type, right? Uh, yes. Then they, they start uh, reading the screenplay, and Fosse's like, this thing sucks. It's going to be a disaster. <laughs> and they then pivot to the, the interview type thing to present the movie. And that is, uh, according to Fossey, what saved the movie, but Dustin Hoffman hates it. Like, Dustin Hoffman... I don't know are there stories of Dustin Hoffman being chill and nice on set though? Like no. I feel like he's always supposed to be the
0: prickliest guy of all, right? Like But in this case he's probably right.
2: He was right, it was a bad screenplay.
0: Well, but but the other problem is it's like I think Fossey's creating that superstructure of the interviews to compensate for the fact that the Hoffman doing stand-up is not compelling enough to carry the movie. Yeah. But again,
2: they should have, you know, they didn't do that in those days, like bring a stand-up in and try to I'm explain. Sure. And again, the material, nobody could have killed with that material either. Some of it was funny, actually, at the beginning. But it was just, I don't know. And by the way, Milton Burrow paid for the funeral, even though the play abused him. They didn't say that he paid for really? his, funeral his funeral.
1: Yeah, he, he paid to put him in the ground, yes, uh, according.
2: According to sources.
0: Dustin Hoffman was, uh, the, the Edward Norton of his time where the story was always, he comes in, he has opinion on fucking everything, right? He wants to take on every role and the stories are always, look, he's right. Most of the time, but do you really want to deal with it? Right. I mean, I think I can say this now because he is dead, but Dustin Hoffman weirdly, very badly wanted to play the Franklin Jella role in draft day. And neither of those people are dead. Oh, Ivan Reitman is dead. Okay, yeah. Ivan Reitman. No, I know. I know who's dead and who's alive, David. Uh, Sorry, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) I keep tabs. Ivan Reitman said life is too short to work with Dustin Hoffman, which (sighs) when you're offered fucking Dustin Hoffman to play the fourth lead of your like sports management comedy, most people would do anything they could to get him to plus up those scenes. And he just went literally, I don't have the energy to have these fights with him. Even if he's right, I don't have the energy. Had he ever worked
1: with us now? I guess he never did. No,
0: I I don't think he had certainly no. And like fucking Reitman worked with Redford and Murray and all these incredibly difficult, you know, leading men. And he just went, I'm too old. I don't give a shit. I don't want to get into these fights with him.
1: Well, apparently what Hoffman is doing, unsurprisingly, he goes out to L.A. He starts exploring, you know, like performing stand up, things like that. He he keeps calling Bob with ideas. He found out that apparently Lenny Bruce at one point had advertised a show by getting a cutout of Hitler and putting it on the side of the freeway, and then having just it say Lenny Bruce, you know, opening on on the you know which again sure. like it, it it sounds so corny now, but like back then I'm sure it was crazy and it's crazy uh, now fo- right and 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 so Hoffman's like calling up Fossey, being like, we got to do that, we got to put that in, right? And Foss is mm-hmm. like, no, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm doing I well, it's it's resistant to Hoffman's notes, I guess. Hoffman says this guy is not a collaborator. Um, but you know, I mean, I'm sure Bob Fosse's, you know, a side of it is essentially like, I'm trying to make my movie over here. Like I I'm, you know, whatever your idea of Lenny Bruce is, you go direct to Lenny Bruce movie. I'm the director. Like, you know, that that seems to be
2: But somebody idiotically putting a Hitler thing on the side of a, of a freeway, only a comedian would come up with that. That's such a stupid idea. So they should have done it because Bob Fosse wants it to be this dignified thing of like Lenny and his deep foot, but only a comedian would think of a shitty idea. Like let's put a Hitler thing and do it. So I'm saying Bob Fosse should have done something in that spirit. This is the thing.
1: I think, yes, I think Fossey could have allowed for Lenny to be a little sillier in this movie. And Bob Fossey is clearly like, no, this was a tortured, drug addicted genius who stood up against hypocrisy and stood up for free speech. And that's what I want to make a movie about. And I'm watching it and I come away with the impression of, yeah, this guy was a drug addicted, very smart guy who stood up for free speech. And he, you know, like, but I'm not coming away with the impression of, like, God, I can, I can tell why this guy changed comedy. Or, I, I, or even, like, why this guy liked comedy. He mostly just seems annoying. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like, when he's, like, being a pain to the judge, I'm like, can you at
2: least be a funny pain to the judge? Exactly. And I bet he was funny to that judge.
0: But, but I'll say this, too, and I think this memory is probably in my head from uh, Hoffman's Inside the Actor studio, but I feel like anytime time I have heard him talk about this film, his preparation for this film, his work on this film, he talks about it the way that now people describe playing the Joker. Like he talked about it as like, I locked myself in a room and I wrote down every routine. I put him on note cards and I smoked obsessively. I tried to get into his head. This this performative thing that now every actor has to do where they're yeah. like, I had to write down murderous things in a notebook until I started laughing. And then I became the Joker, America's greatest dramatic figure. And it's like he was also so attracted to the self-tortured aspects of this guy. Both of them, I think, were primarily into this idea of what Lenny Bruce represented rather than what he actually kind of was as an artist, his basic art, which was trying to make people laugh, drunk people laugh in nightclubs. And it's funny also that this film comes so pretty soon after he's dead. I mean, it's like the timeline between him dying, the play running on Broadway, this movie all happens in less than 10 years. Yeah, he died in 66.
1: So this movie
0: is, what, eight years later. Yeah. Yeah, like there's not a ton of distance perspective.
1: Well, it's also crazy that this movie was a wide studio release. And like 10 years earlier, he was getting arrested for saying, you know, fuck. Or whatever. That's just
2: what's crazy about the '60s, like you know, that the, the, it all happened so quickly. Let's say this: the other of these uh, romanticized nav- narratives is that Lenny Bruce was getting arrested in 1910 years earlier. He got arrested like once or twice. The rest of the time, he was beloved by the nation. He was the biggest star in comedy. Nobody's so like, oh my god, he was shunned. He took a million chances, and he deserved all his success. But he was successful, you know he wasn't successful after he died. he was successful while he was alive, yeah, and he deserved it. He changed the game
1: like when you think of someone like Bill Hicks, right, like a sort of similar like truth teller gone too soon type comedian, like he was never like that famous, right, like he never was a guy who could was playing- Ca- Carnegie Hall or whatever, or was he? I maybe I
2: no, 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 he was not. He was actually starting to blow up in England at the time when he died when he got very sick, bill. So he probably, who knows? But uh, yeah, but Bill Hicks was, uh, right. He was, uh, he was never as big as that. No, he wore clubs. He wore clubs. Right. Where's
1: Lenny Bruce, like, climbed the mountain of comedy.
2: And Bill Hicks and Lenny Bruce, the other thing that had in common, which is nobody talks about their early stuff, which was really funny joke jokes, too. So, like, they didn't come at it from a point of view, like, I'm going to be a truth teller. They started a certain way. They were very successful. Bill well, very successful as a club comic when he was 16, 17. And then they decided to push it further on. You know, they get a little older and they got restless, you know,
0: not, not to keep relating everything back to the the George Carlin documentary, but just because I, I watched five hours of that recently. So I was really thinking about his whole career arc. But it's such a key piece to him that, like, he spent 10 years being a very conventional comedian. He learned how to do funny voices. He learned how to have stage presence. You know, and like what he was doing was more traditional, but it was still funny. He wasn't hacky. And then he got to a point where he said, I want to actually find a way to represent what I think and tackle more complicated subjects. But he was fitting that into a basic fundamental understanding of how to make people laugh. He understood rhythms. He understood energy. He understood wording and construction and all of that shit. Whereas a lot of when you see, I think, the worst open micers. They are people who are just getting to, I'm going to say shit you're not supposed to say. And then when people don't laugh at it, it's what you said where they go, well, I was too extreme for them. They didn't laugh because I was too hot for this fucking room.
2: Oh, yeah. Now, there's a lot of that. And um, yeah, no, exactly. You have to be you have to. Like I said, I mean, it still comes down to laughs. If you're in a comedy club and you're not laughing unless that person really is revealing the great truths that nobody in life has figured out yet. You're like, what am I doing? You're like, I'm not going to come back here. You know what I mean? It's, it's your long-winded, uh, drunken friend at a party, you know?
0: Lenny Bruce had the benefit in, 19, in the 1950s and 60s, and not to diminish what he did, that like no one was getting on stage into a microphone in front of a crowd and going like, hey, uh, people have sex. So that in and of itself was shocking. That was truly a thing that had not been verbalized in that kind of sphere before.
2: Yes. People would make like everything was an innuendo, and it was although there was some truth to it, because otherwise people wouldn't have laughed at those people, one-liners, like they're laughing at mother-in-law jokes because people's mother-in-laws live with them and everybody's wedged it together. And the mother-in-law was judging them a little bit because she she hadn't judged her husband, and now it's in 1950. She's like, This son of a bitch. I see what they're doing now. I didn't see it when I was young. So, I mean, it was all true stuff that was funny. But Lenny Bruce is like, I'm telling you the, the, the thoughts in my mind that we don't talk about.
0: which is- And when he's starting out as a, you know, evolving into that stage as a stand up, sitcoms are still showing married couples in separate beds. There's this thing where it's like, well, we all know this doesn't represent reality, but we obviously but we just don't can't want to talk about it. Right. We don't right, want to talk yeah. about it. So, merely saying the thing, as you said, was like, well, you're verbalizing something that hasn't been said before. That alone is going to give you a lot of juice. Absolutely,
2: yes. and he, yeah, yeah, I mean, he did. There was a lot. I bet, once again, you know, it's hindsight is twenty twenty, but uh, you know, I always think like, if only Bob Fosse had known enough to really interview all the comedians that were anti Lenny Bruce, I'm sure to that day they were still like that, and somehow wedged them in the movie, saying, "Here's what I think." Then you would have seen like what Lenny Bruce. Faced. I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of comedians loved him, but a lot of comedians didn't like, you know, they, they were like, that's that interesting. Like they hinted with Milton Burr. but it's like that fake kind of, that facade that he wanted to, that he did crash through, you know, it, it's interesting.
0: I had the realization watching this, I was watching it with the, the woman I'm dating and I, I during one of the more sort of uh, self-indulgent uh, runs he has and especially with Hoffman trying to overplay the drama in these things. I think that's another thing is like, in all the stand-up performance scenes, Hoffman is so into playing the self-tortured aspect of it that that's smothering the comedy a little bit, even though I think Fossey is selecting least funny stretches of his material. But I, I said to her at one point, I went, this is really just that Twitter thread that you roll your eyes at now. Like every one of these routines that they show in the movie is like Matty Iglesias going, let me try to explain something to you. And then in brackets, it says one out of 27. And you go, holy fucking shit. What is this? (laughs) What is this fucking guy? Hey, dig this. I'm going to tell you how these things fucking work. And you're like, okay, mute, you know?
1: It is interesting to see the crowds in this movie, the audiences, and to imagine that at least, right? Like, what like a 1950s comedy concert goer would would have been like, right? Like someone born in the turn of the century who's like, all right, what's this guy going to say? And he's getting up there and he's being like, men and women, they have sex with each other. And, they're, you know, like it is, it, that's what I was kept trying to put my head in like in that space in, in like, like what, what was the crowd back
0: then? It, it is in many ways the most, traditionally biopicy scene in this movie. And this is a movie where, like, I agree with all of the criticisms we're saying. I still kind of love this movie just in its construction and its approach to the biopic, in the same way that Cabaret is Fosse trying to blow up what a movie musical is. And I do think while not totally understanding the subject, I think the form of this movie is really interesting, and is a form I wish more biopics followed rather than trying to can form people's lives to very traditional three-act structures. But there's that scene in the script that feels like the most biopic scene where his manager comes backstage at the strip club and is like, I can't explain this to you, but people think what you're doing is about to be a thing. They think this is in and you're on the cusp of something. And he's like, I don't want to go back to fucking clubs. I don't want to do mother-in-law jokes. The great thing about performing at a strip club is I can say anything and no one gives a shit. And the manager being like, "No, but what I think is about to change is people at traditional clubs will let you talk like you're at a strip club. right And right, it's that yeah, realization right. of he only finds his freedom as a comedian when he's accepted that he's in a place where like, none of this fucking matters. This is a a, a fucking den of depravity. I can just talk exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. right. And this cultural shift of something is changing, and people now maybe want to hear the tie get loosened.
2: Yeah, and maybe not for the better. What about this, though? You say traditional biopic structure. Unfortunately, I just made I made sure it was an earlier movie. I just Googled it. There was another biopic that had that st- uh, uh, structure, and it was called Little Big Man, and it was four years before Leonard. And you know who started yeah, that?
0: With Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman. Dustin yeah.
2: Hoffman. Dustin <laughs> Hoffman!
1: <laughs> Arthur Penn movie i would never seen Little Big Man. That's like a classic revisionist Western, right? Like that's, uh, you know, hey, the Wild West wasn't so cool.
2: No, right. I saw it when it came out. I was a little kid, and it was a big, that was a big hit. Lenny was not a big hit when it came out. At least people thought it was kind of disappointing, even then.
1: Some more context on Lenny. All right. It shot for 100 days, which is insane. Fosse claims more like 80, but no. Uh, Apparently, one thing he insisted on was the extras for the crowds. He would only let them watch two performances max. So they had like 2,500 extras in one week and they would cycle them in and out because like Fossey was like, I need them to have authentic reactions and, you know, like while they're shooting performances. But like this is the thing, like as much as this is Bob Fossey making a small movie, he has the clout at this point to make demands like that, right?
0: Like... I mean, there there was that thing, they they dramatize it in Fosse-Verdon, but the whole idea was like, Bob, you just got out of rehab, your health is fucked, your brain is fucked, like, maybe take a break, you've had this crazy year, and he's like, no, I have to keep working, I'll tackle a small movie, it was a play, I can keep it stage-bound, I can shoot it on location. And then very quickly, he was like, we got to go to Miami. It has to be real Miami. We have to go to all these clubs. We have to shoot in three different cities. It's got to be
1: interview form. We're going to cut it all up. It's going to be this whole, yes, 100%. And
0: is he the off-camera voice of the interviewer in this?
1: I, is he? I don't know. I, I, I mean, that makes sense. So there's no one credited that I can find. But uh, Yeah. I always assumed sense, it right? was. Yeah. yeah. There's one anecdote that I think is, is kind of, you know, an example of Fosse being totally right. Where like while Hoffman's doing a routine, like they'd finish and Fosse would be like faster, 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 and Hoffman would be like nobody talks like this. And after twenty takes, Hoffman does it so fast, and he's like, well, he was right. Like that is actually what I was supposed to be doing the whole time, you know. And when I hear that story, I'm like, Hoffman doesn't seem to get it to me. Like if he if he thinks stand up comedians like oh well no one talks like this, but like that's how people talk on stage, like. That, that is part of the sort of unreality of a stand-up. Like, that's what's, that's what's cool
0: about it, that they're, that they're it, talking so rapidly. It's funny yeah. that it sounds like they both didn't get different parts of it and were fighting <laughs> on, on how to do it while both of them were sort of misunderstanding. Look, I don't love this movie. I feel like you like it more, Griff. You've also seen it more. I have, and I, I said this in an earlier episode, but this was like when I was in high school I saw this movie on TV and I was sort of so blown away by the style of it. And this was the first Fosse movie I'd seen that then I dug into him. And it's like, I I prefer Cabaret, All That Jazz, Star 80 greatly to this movie. I think those three films are perfect masterpieces, essentially. And this is a step below, but it always kind of holds the spot for me of like, catching it on TV by accident and going like, what is this? What is this filmmaking style? This sort of Fosse, like, everything's a montage, you know.
1: There are things about this movie that are kind of great, and it's not something I really ever feel the need to rewatch, but, like, it looks so good. It it's, looks... Like, the, the cinematography kind of is so incredible. And then everything yeah. else you're saying, all the montage stuff, all the stuff that's obviously influenced by, like, Fosse watching, like, New Wave movies and, you know, French movies and all, you know, like, his sort of, like, the lingering little art influences. Like, all... It, The fact it just looks incredible. So it's worth it's worth something to me just aesthetically, like beyond it's got
0: it's got an incredible texture. I mean, like Colin, you summed up perfectly, which is just like if if you're watching Rocket Man and it makes the Elton John song sound bad, you fundamentally failed. When I watch this movie, I have to divorce. I have to sort of (laughs) compartmentalize. I don't think this movie does a good job of arguing for Lenny Bruce's value in any way. And I do think this movie also perpetuates a lot of these things that are really irritating our culture of what we talked about of just like the fucking struggling, tortured, you know, sad clown shit. Uh, but but I, I like the filmmaking in this movie divorced from its sort of failure of the source material. Right, right, right. Because C- yeah. even I found uh, at a record store uh, by chance last week There is weirdly an original cast recording of the Lenny Broadway play. That is weird. Which is like not a thing that you feel like often exists for straight plays and not musicals. But I think because that play is like half comedy album, essentially. And it is a thing. What's his name? Gorman. the, The energy of that thing. And I think especially if you are watching someone who does a better evocation of being a stand up and you are seeing it as a live audience in a theater, you know, so you, the audience, are playing the role of Lenny's audience. The reaction that's happening or not happening is genuine and earned. You're not going to laugh unless this guy is successfully selling these jokes versus a movie like this where we're watching dramatization of audience response. There is an energy to even listening to the fucking cast recording of it where you're like, this works.
2: And this is how many years later... Back in nineteen seventy four, it was probably worked ten times better. Yeah, absolutely. You've seen yeah thousands. You've seen thousands of comedians since then. In those days, people saw like eight people. You know, right.
1: right. 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 The movie shot by Bruce Surtees, obviously by you know who's Robert Surtees' son, and Robert Surtees shot Sweet Charity. So uh-huh. he's bringing, but that guy becomes Clint's guy. That guy works on so many Clint Eastwood movies in the seventies and eighties. He also shot like Beverly Hills Cop. He's he's sort of like a big cinematographer in general um but he shot dirty harry and he shot almost everything clint directed all the way to the late 80s basically and i you know he's incredible
0: the the sort of like high contrast high shadow just it always feeling like he's in a void
2: do you think that guy sat down with the director of beverly hills cop and said do you want the detroit scenes to look (laughs) a certain way and the beverly hills scenes and the guy's probably like what just, Bass, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, he's probably like, just he'll wear a lion's jacket. What is this guy doing? Oh, <laughs> well, Martin Press is a good director, so Oh, uh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. uh The only other at one point that I, this is very funny. Fosse's paranoia was so intense that he saw a big bearded guy on set and was like, "That's Francis Ford Coppola. You're trying to replace me." He just saw a guy who was heavy set and had a beard, and he was like, "You're getting the god like like Coppola is like lurking over his shoulder." I guess I don't know. Francis
0: Ford Coppola would have been. Yeah, he might have been good. I don't know. I mean, is this is this the same year, same year as... as Godfather Two? Yes, and which means it's also the same year as the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, the best picture nominees this year are Godfather Two, which wins. Chinatown, The Conversation, Lenny, and The Towering Inferno, which is the sort of, you know, the concession to big, big blockbuster filmmaking, I guess. But, but, but uh, it's, but a, it's pretty a strong five. pretty fucking yeah.
0: year for movies. And even though Fosse beat Coppola for director last time, they were up against each other. We've read all these interviews where he had this chip on his shoulder about the fact that he didn't win Best Picture.
1: Right. I mean, the director nominees are Coppola... Uh, Fossey, Polanski, and then Francois Truffaut for Day for Night and John Cassavetes for A Woman Under the Influence. It is a an astounding five. Right. Yeah. And obviously, Hoff- Hoffman loses Best Actor to Art Carney. That's like that Murderer's Row year where Pacino, Nicholson, and Hoffman lose to Art Carney for Harry and Tonto. And Albert Finney and Murderer on the Orient Express is the other nominee. Yeah.
0: That's that. Meh, yeah, that's a little. Yeah.
1: Uh, I've never seen Harry and Tonto, so I can't weigh in. I've never been able to, like, I don't know how much of a robbery that is. Have you
0: seen Harry it's him and, and Tonto? cat. Have you seen that movie, Colin? No,
1: no. It's a Mazursky movie.
0: But it's like he's a lonely guy with a cat, right? Isn't that what it is?
1: Yeah, Tonto's the cat. He goes cross country. That's all I got. I don't know. Then, yeah, so Fosse shot this movie. He shot, like, 400,000 feet of film. You know, it was way too much. He's jumbling up the chronology while in the edit room and all that. And he's uh, smoking one million cigarettes a day, and uh, th- this is, I think, I think an anecdote we shared on the cabaret set. But he would he would forget about the cigarettes when he was smoking them, and they would burn his lips. Like he would, like pe- people would have to take cigarettes out of his mouth because he would forget to take it out. Just, just all these like sort of stories of his mania. Yeah,
0: what, what did he rip the filters off his cigarettes? Wasn't that another thing with him? A lot of people used to do that. A
2: lot of those people see, in the seventies people did that in the seventies all the time. give me come on, I need it straight.
1: Why would you filter it right?
2: I used to study with Bill Hickey acting, and then it was like, so he was this great old you know you young know, Bill Hickey, he talked like that he's old
0: yeah yeah yeah. yeah yeah, yeah from, from uh Prizzi's Prissy's On, eye yeah, oh.
2: so he'd sit there in class and talk, and you'd do a five minute scene, he'd talk for an hour and but he'd always compare like if somebody's doing like, you know, the win- oh, winter's tale, he compare it to like, I saw, you know, uh, one of his friends was on Love Boat last night and she did this scene <laughs> where she entered out the captain's table and she said this, it was always, but he would smoke the whole time. And by the end of class, his clothes would be covered in ashes. But I mean, covered in ashes and his fingers yeah. were all like discolored from cigarettes. Oh, yellow. Cigarettes. oh yeah, right. Yeah, he smoked all the time. And he's covered in ashes every class. His hair would be covered. And we all smoked. So <laughs> the whole class was smoking. But he was exceptional even then. Yeah.
1: Smoking in class? I'm sorry. Is that what you said, Colin?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, everybody smoked. and But he smoked more than anybody. And it's funny because I ran into this lady the other day who's in her 80s. And we were talking about uh, Bill Hickey. And she goes, we used to have a class. She goes, In the 50s, I think it was Meisner or Bill Hick. she goes, we would start at 11 at night in like 1956 and go till 8 in the morning. And I was like, what a cool, she goes, it was so cool. Like, even then we knew like this is a special time in New York. The class starts at 11 at night. And we'd all come in there and just hang out and do this acting class, this big acting class in the middle of the village when it was dirt cheap and, you know.
0: Interesting and and Ben Prucer Ben by the way just to contextualize for you better uh, you probably know Bill Hickey best as Don Uncle Freddie Federico in the Jerky Boys the movie uh, oh, there yeah, you go sure of I course. think isn't he all in... he's in Christmas Vacation right he's in one of the vacations Uncle yeah. Lewis, yes. Yeah, yes, no, no, he's Uncle Lewis. yeah he's in Christmas Vacation
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right yeah yes. but ben, ben just heard cigarette smoking teacher and he's like that's my kind of school is that is that what's going on yeah I mean it just That wasn't an option for me while I was in school, but it sounds nice. (laughs)
2: Yeah,
1: it was great. It was great. As anyone who's seen all that jazz knows, while he's making this movie, he's working on Chicago at the same time, and he has a gigantic heart attack because that's what all that jazz is about, right? It's about working on this and Chicago at the same time, and then completely cratering. And obviously, his reaction to all of this is not like, "Oh man, I need to chill out." His reaction is to be insane to hit on every nurse who comes to see him in the hospital to only accentuate all of his vices, I guess. And, uh, he wrote in his will at this time, this is sort of a famous thing about Bob Fosse, that he would bequest $25,000 to uh, a bunch of friends so they could go out and have a really nice dinner, uh, which was actually in Bob Fosse's will. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. He's crazy. Every story about him is like, what a pain in the ass. I don't know. He seems like a completely exhausting person to know.
0: Exhausting is the exact word. Yes. Yeah.
1: This movie was a hit-ish. Yeah, not really. 10 million. It grossed 11 million on a $3 million budget. I think everyone did fine. It just wasn't a cabaret-sized hit.
0: No, and I think it's that, that phenomenon we've talked about of someone following up their huge Oscar breakthrough movie with a movie that like people like. They still get the nominations, but yeah, there isn't the Oscars. same excitement. Yeah. Right. Right.
2: But you know what's you know what's interesting now? Just when you're saying a big dinner for all his friends. But yeah. the comedian, right? Like Lenny Bruce. He didn't have that many friends. Because you're always by yourself. So Lenny yes. Bruce is in these clubs. He's got his agent. And that's it. So instead of having a full staff like Bob Posse. Who's just Lenny Bruce at these clubs. It's true. There's
1: no
0: sense of any of any entourage with this guy at all. No. He, yeah. Yeah. I, I also think it's telling and a lot of it is just her performance is so excellent but like it feels like he absolutely has a better understanding of honey as a character than lenny
2: absolutely i mean she's
1: called hot honey she you know she dances in strip joints like that's like these are his kind of people he knows that so well exactly he knows that
0: so well and i think he really understands her psychology Yeah. And like Prine's just knocking it out of the fucking park. But it is that thing watching it last night where I I was explaining like, oh, this this is how Fosse grew up. He was doing shows like this when he was like 15. And the woman I'm dating went, oh, so that's why this movie is really more about her than him. Yes.
1: Yeah. And why her stuff is so incredibly compelling in this movie.
0: Yeah and, um, I, yeah, and I yeah. think she actually does a better job of playing the levels of the weird relationship between performer and audience, you know? Especially because she gets to jump around in time so much. But her telling the story from, you know, present day with perspective, when you see her performance scenes, when you see her vulnerability offstage, her varying levels of control over her vices and everything, she's just, like, so fucking she's good. She's
2: great. At she's amazing, yeah.
1: I know her best from Superman.
0: I mean, I know that's, that's basic of me, but like she's the henchwoman, yeah. What's funny is she's an early example of what now happens to people, where it's like, oh, you give this incredible performance in this edgy movie, you get an Oscar nomination, and then they stick you in a franchise and you're stuck right. sort of right. doing in like a supporting role. Yeah. And she's a lot yeah. of fun in those movies, but she essentially plays like Lex Luthor's Gangsters Mall and she does it in three of them. Uh she does two of them, yeah. I'll give you another one from that era that was the same way. Beverly D'Angelo.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. She was it. You ever see with Coal Miner's Daughter? She was unbelievable.
0: Oh, yes.
1: She's, she's so good in Coal Miner's Daughter. That movie is amazing. Uh, that's a great biopic. That, there's a good example of a great What biopic. a
2: great
0: biopic. Oh, my God. Uh,
1: and Beverly D'Angelo was robbed of an Oscar nomination. In fact, uh, she plays Patsy Cline. For anyone who doesn't hasn't seen it,
0: but but Margot Kidder a, a similar thing as well, you know. Sure, yes, yeah. obviously she got tagged with the difficult,
1: you know, quote unquote, right. uh, reputation. Yeah, but no, no. The thing with Valerie Perrine is like, it's not like she doesn't work. She had a career. Mm-hmm. She was in stuff all, you know, and eventually she's sort of like in some TV. But yeah, you you would think seeing this performance, like, oh, did this person go on to have like a major movie star career? And
0: she doesn't. No, I think I think "Can't Stop the Music" kind of hurt her a little bit too. I mean, this is that's yeah. some years later, but that was such a radioactive flop, and I think she's got the one of the movie, lead right? roles in that. Right? She's yeah, she's essentially. I think she's the. I think she's the lead. If it's her, not counting the village people, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Are are the sort of young leads of that? But yeah, Electric Horseman, I guess, is sort of the one movie she has that's sort of at her level. I forgot she's in the Border as well. What well, you guys should do. I'm sure you
2: guys will love hearing suggestions for your podcast. But you what you guys should do is is all the movies that were so even though the big stars, big budget studio that were coke. Because I always think of nineteen forty one and when you said don't stop the music, that's another one.
0: Yeah, like right. these Just giant that, that, movies. New
1: York, New York. That's a classic one. Right. In the middle of Coke era, you know what I mean? Right. Where where everyone is on Coke. Everyone is on coke.
0: Rather than picking a director and go through all their films, we construct a miniseries where the auteur is cocaine and it's movies that were primarily directed by cocaine. And you could almost
2: try to like find the people in it and find out who is the big coke dealer at that time on the movie set. I'm sure they had one big dealer on each one of them, you know.
1: Oh, it's it's like knowing the the good DPs or the good the, the good yes, yes. passing drugs. Like, who was the dealer on this one though? Oh, well, that's why yes. it's good. Oh, oh, it was Joey. It was, you know, it was Joey John.
0: Whatever. What were you going to say, Griff? This is sideways relevant because it's a Hoffman story. Have I ever told the Papillon Steve McQueen story on on the mic? Not that I can remember. Okay, so uh, uh my friend Barry Josephson, who's a, a mm-hmm. great producer, produced the tech. He uh, who started out uh, representing comedians, he, he was Whoopi's first uh, manager. He was working with someone who produced. No, he, it was he met Dustin Hoffman and he was he was talking to Dustin Hoffman about what it was like to work with Steve McQueen on Papillon. Right. And Hoffman's like a star at this point. He's like one of the most exciting young stars. But Steve McQueen has been a capital M movie star for a good period of time at this point, has a defined movie star persona. 100%, all he's, yeah, no, he's 20 right. years into a storied career. Right, yes. and I think that's the first time that Hoffman is working with someone who is undeniably has that much more movie star Hollywood weight than he does in one of these movies, right? Uh, as, as the dominant lead. So Barry asked him what it was like working with McQueen, and he goes, this is, I'll tell you what it was. McQueen was the first time that I understood what a movie star is what really defines the amount of powers a movie star can hold, right? And he said, uh, you know, we filmed the whole movie on this island, and it's hard to get to, right? There are only, like, so many boats that go back and forth per day. We're all staying on the island because we'd lose time otherwise. And McQueen was so obsessed with racing his cars right, that he demanded that they ship one of his sports cars, you know, one of his Italian sports cars to this island so he could do laps around the island on his off time because it was such a vice for him that uh, he, 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 couldn't, he couldn't go two days without fucking uh, terror Robert, right? And, and Barry goes, wow, that's, that's crazy. So he was such a movie star, he got them to bring the car over in the big box, paid whatever, $100,000 to get the car over. And he goes, no, that's not the story. The story is that he had his mechanics uh, pull apart the car and hide cocaine everywhere inside of it, inside of the tires, inside of the engine, <laughs> inside of everything, because um, the, the fucking, the customs were so extreme. I forget where it was they shot Papillon, but they could find ways to successfully smuggle cocaine in. So Steve McQueen essentially had them use like a $200,000 sports car as the packaging for his cocaine. I mean, that's impressive. But what's not impressive is The French Connection came out
2: two years earlier. The biggest movie in the world. And that was the whole thing. They smuggled cocaine, heroin, in the car. This fucking hat. I'm just saying, he's lucky he didn't get caught. Yes, Right, It's lucky (laughs) no one was like, hey, remember that movie French Connection, though? Remember, it was in the panels of the car? Yes,
1: Yes. I just think it's crazy
2: that he really did that. But honestly, cocaine, in those days, they would have been like, ah, it's only cocaine. If it was right. weed, we yes. would have gotten
0: more trouble. Sure. Yeah. Well, that was uh, Popeye famously also. They're filming on Malta, and they'd get shipments of what the, they had been told, the studio had been told were uh, camera equipment, and they'd open up the crates, and it would just be cocaine. It was just Bob <laughs> Evans shipping <laughs> crates of cocaine to Malta. Another movie that is primarily directed by cocaine, co-directed by Robert Altman, but cocaine is really the auteur of Popeye.
2: Yeah, all 80. I would say... 80 to 82. There was a lot of deep, sure. big movie disasters from Coke. You know, just bad movies. Yeah, and Coke ruined them. Man.
0: Okay, are there any scenes we're not talking about? There's the moment where he's making the argument to his uh, to his lawyer that they need to allow him to do his entire routine in court. Yes, right. And uh, the the lady I'm dating said like, "Oh, is that where this movie's going? Is that really where the plot's heading?" Like she right, was sort like of preconditioned to final... expect the biopic, right? Right. This is going to be the final 20 minute performance. And the judge right. is like, you know, like starts right. clapping slowly. And instead, there, you got the scene, which I think is maybe Hoffman's best scene where he's arguing with that, the, the judge to let him do it. Yes, I agree. He was funny in that scene. He's funny in yes. that scene. Yes. And then you pretty much hard cut from that scene to dead body on the bathroom and interviewing everyone about how he ended up that way. I, is that the scene where the jury
1: is laughing? There's the shot where the camera pans over the jury. And they're not like laughing hysterically, yes. but
0: they're smirking. Right, yeah, okay, that's a little earlier. And smirking. that is ultimately the, the thing that got Lenny off, right? Was they were able to prove this has entertainment value because the jury's laughing. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another moment, just a, a sort of Fosse construction thing that I love in this movie, which is, what is it? You go from they're sort of having their relationship arguments, right? It's after the threesome scene, which is one of the least sexy sex scenes ever committed to film. It is just so bleak and depressing. And then immediately, it's like you have that run of uh, uh, Valerie Prine in an interview saying, when you're on dope, you're a different person. You do things, ideas that wouldn't even come into your head otherwise. And then it cuts to him trying to talk her into the threesome against her will then the threesome, which is so depressing, and then him yelling at her for the fact that she was too into the threesome, right? right? Right, Which I think is kind of like an incredible run of the movie. And then he sort of settles the argument by saying, like, well, we should have a kid. And then you hard cut to them at the Chinese food restaurant with the kid right. sucking on the right. ribs, yelling, you know, her zonked right. out, showing up late, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, the stuff with the kid really got to me. I can't handle that anymore. Like, I can't handle neglect of children. Um, Go ahead. The cut to me that's brilliant is you cut from him saying we should have a kid to the kid acting up, her showing up late. And then there's another cut to him in the booth at the same restaurant. And you realize we're seeing his memory of the last time he was here. And then when he goes to pick up the takeout, the guy says, like, your wife's very beautiful. and He goes, we're divorced and you've skipped right. over like three life stages and two cuts. Right. Like, the construction of that is really cool to me. It is cool. That's
1: what's all that's everything that's most interesting about this movie. And the thing that is least interesting, fairly or unfairly, yes, is is Lenny Bruce, you know, proselytizing. Right. You know, I was watching it with my wife and she was she was like uh, I guess, you know, she kept saying the thing that we've been saying. It's like I guess this was different or like i guess this was un- unheard of at the time right like that's how you sort of just explain it away yeah
2: it was still unfairly done unfairly unfairly i unfairly
1: vote <laughs> unfair
2: uh yeah, so yes. when when the kid
1: is with him and the uh, honey is on the phone saying like you gotta do this and he's ignoring her I, I i was really my skin was crawling watching that which is just a personal thing now i just can't handle it anymore
2: I met her a couple of times, Kitty really? Bruce. Yeah, yeah, back yeah. in the '80s, and uh, I was like, she was really nice backstage at Bleecker Street, at this theater on Bleecker Street. They used to do comedy night, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, your, I go to one time, I go, your father was the, and I could see her face was like, oh, shut the fuck up, I've heard this right. from Who everybody. I basically was like, blah 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 blah, and she was like, oh god, another asshole. But but she, <laughs> I, can't say, I can't say she was wrong.
0: She, uh, after he died, got uh, George Pataki to overturn the obscenity well, honey charge. Honey did, honey did, right? Honey not, did. Not, yeah, not sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Not, not kidding. kidding. Sorry, 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 sorry. Yes, yeah.
1: Honey, George Pataki. Yes, George Pataki. Uh, what year was that? New York, two thousand and three. Colin, that's 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 how long it took. Uh, Pardon to him obscenity, guess, right? for yeah. the obscenity thing. Yes. Um, and she, yeah, she, li- I mean, Honey lived until 2005. She lived to, to the age of 78. D- died in to, Hawaii. Moved to Hawaii. Yeah, moved yeah. to Hawaii.
0: That's a, a a fun sequence, too, when he goes to visit her in jail and you have that reverse shot of the three female convicts in their sort of skirt uniforms at the respective windows. And he's showing her the right. album. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. just things in this I love, but it, but it also is, like, It feels in so many ways like a dry run with technique and structure to what he's going to do in all that jazz. And in all that jazz, he has a protagonist who he completely understands because it's himself. Right. He understands this guy's art form. He understands how to show that this guy's good at what he does. That's the thing. He understands the art form in all that jazz
1: so perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, it's actually fascinating in all that jazz when you see him staring at you know the fake Lenny movie yes. and it almost seems exhausting like even to watch it within as a movie within a movie you're sort of like ah oh, Jesus this
0: guy keeps fucking yelling well like, and this uh, movie is like, romanticizing him without being able to actually express what was interesting about him I and mean, Roger Ebert had right. like his review at the time was like I don't think anyone who isn't already a fan of Lenny Bruce will come out of this movie having any sense of his value as a performer of what he did, right? Right. It's, right, it's just as a political figure. Like, this movie almost treats him like Nelson Mandela. And and the difference is that, like, in all that jazz, he understands the guy better because it's him, but he also isn't deifying him. He's trying to pull the guy apart because he hates himself. Right. But, but, yeah, he gets to sort of dry run a lot of the, like, fever dream, death rattle Feeling of this movie into all that jazz where he perfects it
1: yeah this movie almost is too stately in a way like not 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 in a like it's just, just because it's so beautiful to look at almost like it doesn't have that kind of raw you know energy that maybe it needs to really convince you of like this guy is hanging by a thread or whatever it does sometimes in the court scenes but less the the, the stage stuff is just so well photographed. And so, you know, does that make sense?
0: Yeah. You know, I think another part of it is maybe why Hoffman's better in the court scenes is because that's the environment where him playing desperation is correct.
1: Yeah. And he suddenly feels small and yes. he feels a little powerless and you're, you're more on his side, you know,
0: because of it and all that.
1: Um, it's just, I don't know. Maybe it's also just I'm conditioned when I want, I want him on stage to be blowing me away. Yeah, even if even with all the context, I know, like,
2: yeah, of course you. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. If I go to see, uh, you know, any movie about a musician, yeah, condition and want their voice to sound good, right? They use all, They won't even. They won't even use a, a actor's voice because right. they're like, no, it's not going to sound good. The music seems important to this movie. The music has to be good. That's what conveying to the audience. So we yeah. have to use the real person and dub them, whether they like it or not. I mean, this is insane. It it drives me nuts.
1: Colin, you didn't like that piss joke. You didn't think <laughs> What's that the piss joke land? Did not land for you? <laughs> you didn't like him saying the n word oh. twenty times. <laughs> oh,
2: boy, but it,
1: but
0: even
2: that scene, it's like the way he did it was like I really got you mad. You wanted, to, and it's just yeah. like it was just there was no life to it. There's no humor. You just got to make it funny. I don't Man. know. I mean, I feel like. Lenny Bruce got a short script.
0: Uh, Colin, my question for you, do you think Chino would have done this better than Hoffman? Slash, mm. do you think there's any star of this moment who could have pulled it off? I guess the obvious answer is you, you do it with the guy who already proved he could do it on Broadway. That's the answer, but they were never going to bankroll it with him.
2: Yeah, but I mean, um, yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, people, have, when I read stuff about Lenny Bruce years ago, they used to always say he had that, like, Catskills uh, rhythm to him, too. Yeah. So to right. leave all that out, like, it was Catskills combined with Jazz Club. You know what I mean? So, like, that was his, when he'd come on stage, so the crowd's, like, with him. Because he was funny for the first 15, years know, last few years he was on heroin. But, so it's like, I mean, Pacino probably would have been better. But I would have, yeah, I would have said go with Cliff Corman. But I mean, Pacino probably would have been better. He seems like he would have been, but, you know. But is Al Pacino that funny? He was funny in Scarface.
1: He is he's, funny in Scarface. Yeah, he's, he you you He you know, you know, gets obviously.
0: funnier later. Yeah, and I mean, and so did De Niro. We all saw the comedian, right? Well, yes, of course. <laughs> uh, we we talk about the great movies that capture being a stand-up. Dustin uh, Robert De Niro as the comedian is is the the high water. By the way, yeah, another
2: example of guys up there basically doing like this crude stuff and being like, Hey, the crowd freaked out. It's like the, the crowd freaked out. Cause she was just like grabbing your cat, whatever it was. Right. What I mean, right. It's all like, you know, I I'm all for transgression accidentally. You know what I mean?
0: But it's not like
2: trying to just be provocative. Like an eight year old kid. You know what I mean?
0: What? So the Oscar winners that year are, we went the Godfather through the book
2: Right. A couple uh, of wins director. Best picture.
0: Uh,
1: Coppola wins director. Ellen Burstyn wins best actress for Alice, which is a great movie. Best actor is Art Carney. Like right. I said,
0: who wins the supportings?
1: Supporting actors goes to uh, Robert De Niro for The Godfather Part Two, pretty great uh-huh. performance. Yeah, yeah and yes, Ingrid yes. Bergman for Murder on the Orient Express, which oh, is right. a little bit of a sort of like, oh, you're you're a legend. Like, thanks for giving us one more perform. Right, it's her last win. Uh, she she is. Very good in she's that movie, very good in but that, that is a she
0: performance is. that, out of context, you're like, "Are you really going to give her the Oscar for that?" They right. they just she... lost their fucking minds for the fact where it's like she's not wearing makeup, right? And she's doing she's, an accent,
1: right? Uh, she beats like Talia Shire in Godfather Two. She beats Madeline Kahn in Blazing Saddles, which is a great nomination, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, so obviously this is this is the height of New Hollywood. It's such an exciting time for cinema. Amarcord wins. Best foreign film. Uh, you know, what are some other movies? Obviously, Chinatown, The Conversation. These are big movies of that year. Uh, Young Frankenstein, Day for Night. Like, you know, it's, it's a good year. It's a huge Howard year. Hawks won an honorary award. and sort of genre noir. Sounds like a good Oscars, honestly. And this movie came out, well, premiered in November, but it really comes out in December Okay. Uh, that's the weekend I'm giving you um, late December 1974, where Lenny is opening number six at the box office. So it's not in the top five. Okay. but
0: but that is even insane to think about. That it opened at number six. Yeah, I think, you know, Hoffman is a big deal. No, I know. I'm just saying, could you imagine a movie like this opening at number six today under any circumstances, even if it starred uh, fucking Channing Tatum as Lenny Bruce? uh
1: you're right you're right You're right. uh number one at the box office and uh, colin we're guessing the top five of the box office from the week this came out just so we oh, can... oh um i'm gonna give number one it's a big hit it's been out for months and months and months it's a it's a thriller it's a crime thriller uh kind kind of a a cultural oh. movie yes Do you think what, you know that?
2: what it is clute
1: it is not Clute. Uh, he leaned all
0: the way into his screen when he said that. It is a far worse movie than
1: Clute. It it's is a not far a far worse movie than Clute. It's, it's, I suppose it's an effective. It spawned many
0: sequels. Okay. It's, it's not a Dirty Harry movie? No, but mm, that's the vibe. Is it Death Wish? It's Death Wish. Mm. It's Charles Bronson's
1: Death Wish. Mm. Yeah. 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 Uh, what do you think of Death Wish, Colin? Love it. Yeah,
2: Love Death Wish. He's, yeah, he's
1: he's, sh- he's
2: shooting people. I I loved Death the rest of them I didn't like, but the original was although I'll I'll admit Death Wish when he goes to Arizona in the middle of the movie is very strange.
1: Yes, he he, he goes to like uh, that's where he gets his guns, right or whatever. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's a yeah. and Stuart Margolin plays a guy from the West from Love American style. Stuart <laughs> Margolin. Does not look yeah. like that Western guy? And um, but uh, but yeah, well, I'm a sucker. Anything. Anytime I see New York in the 70s, you I'm automatically gonna say, I'm going right. to be predisposed. That's the thing. Yeah. Right.
0: Like like any, any movie shot in New York between like 1965 and 1983 has that as a special effect, which is just you're capturing New York City in the background. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that 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 poster yeah. where he's in Central Park That's or whatever. Right. Yeah.
1: All right. Number two at the box office. One of the biggest hits of the year. Disaster movie. Not uh, The Towering Inferno.
0: It's not Towering Inferno. Is it Poseidon no. Adventure? No. Is it uh, Earthquake? It's Earthquake. Okay. Who's, who's the lineup in Earthquake again?
1: Uh, Charlton Heston, Ava Gardner, George okay. Kennedy, Lauren Green. That's your, that's your big four.
2: Got
1: it. Never seen Earthquake.
0: Me neither. Weird group.
1: It had it had the thing right where the, the the they had like surround sound early surround sound that was its oh big sure
0: yes, uh, yes that you would feel
1: like the earthquake was happening all around you
0: co-written by Mario Puzo yes yeah well he was a uh, you know he got his fucking paychecks after Godfather exactly oh
1: yeah. yeah um number three at the box office is a film we mentioned uh, that Bob Fosse worked on not Little Prince is it it is Little Prince really
0: what? yes. I thought Little that was Prince. a big flop.
1: Yeah, it was a big flop, but it's
0: in the box that you know it just came out and it's it's hanging around. I've never seen it. I I just want to say because I hadn't made this connection before, but uh, uh, JJ pulled up some quotes in the in the research dossier that that linked this up. A lot of people think that Michael Jackson's sort of solo career dance style, including the moonwalk, come um, from Bob Fosse's performance in The Little Prince. That's interesting. Oh. Well, there's there a, there's Great. a similarity there that I didn't realize. He was, was influenced by Bob Fosse, yeah. Absolutely, yeah.
2: And it's, if, we, if if there one movie he might be interested in watching, it sounds like it was that one.
0: Absolutely, and and Bob Fosse is sort of uh, doing the the jazzy lizard king thing. thing. Uh, number four, I'm gonna get. You're gonna get four. Okay. Number four, one
1: of the biggest hits in 1974. It's a sequel. It's part of a sort of,
0: sort of. Bye, bye, you waverman. Know,
2: <laughs> it's not
1: Bye Bye Braverman <laughs> um, Which of course
0: was a sequel to Hi Hi Braverman
1: No it was a sequel to Bye Bye Birdie right Oh uh, sure um, <laughs> uh, it's, No it's a sequel It's part of like a franchise It's one of those things that you're like That was huge in the 70s and now it's forgotten
0: it's, Is it an airport movie
1: Nope <laughs>
0: That was a good guess. Thank you. Okay, forgotten. Can 70s give you a genre. Is, is it a want?
2: Billy Jack movie?
1: It's a Billy. It's a Billy Jack movie. Okay,
2: Born Losers.
1: Is, it, is uh, it? not, It's not Born Losers, <clears throat> which is the first Billy Jack movie. Oh yeah. Is the second one just called Billy Jack, or is this Billy Correct. Jack goes to
0: Washington?
1: No, the second one is called Billy Jack. The third one is this one. Billy Jack goes to Washington is the fifth one. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Billy what? Jack. I can't believe I don't know this. I should know, I should know this. I was there.
0: Give us, give us a sort of title structure. What is Billy Jack? Are, are we describing an activity that he does? This Something's time? happening to him. Something happens. Love, love finds Billy Jack. <laughs> Billy Jack <laughs> no. goes bananas.
1: No. I mean, I think he's always going bananas, but no. God, this movie is three hours
0: long. Oh, oh, oh. It is must it be the, unwatchable. Is, I think I know the answer. Is it the trial of Billy Jack? It's the trial of Billy Jack. That's right.
2: I don't remember that.
0: Colin,
1: have you seen (laughs) these movies? I've never seen a Billy Jack.
2: I saw them when they came out.
1: I only know them as like pop culture footnotes. Like I've never, yeah. No,
2: Billy Jack was the. uh, You talk about that was that was along with uh, the Dustin Hoffman Little Big Man. Billy Jack was the the revenge of Native Americans. You know, basically on uh, you know for all the westerns of the old days. But also so
0: fascinating because they were like these outsider films. Like they were made independently outside of the studio system.
2: Tom Lachlan had no charisma.
0: No, and and, he he just like willed himself into being a movie star and made a franchise out of it. They were so huge. Yes, he did.
2: Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. Even at the time, people were like, who the hell is Tom Lachlan?
1: (laughs) Yeah, he later founded a Montessori school and then ran for president three times.
2: What? He founded a Montessori school and what? He ran for president
1: Montessori school and ran for president in 92, 2004 and
2: 2008. I love it. He probably taught martial arts Montessori.
0: He (laughs) received 154 votes in the New Hampshire primary against George W. Bush.
2: Well, Uh, all right. Everybody used to quote him when I was a kid. When I see this, I just go berserk.
1: (laughs) Right. That was was a big quote back when I was a kid. Yeah. Billy Jack. Okay, number five at the box office is probably not a movie you're going to get, Griff. It has a very chilling title. Uh, it is a Southern set crime drama. Um. All right. That's best. Note, I, here's the clue.
2: Title. I know what it's called. What's it called? Harlan County. It's not that. <laughs>
1: um, no, it's it's make not it, that good. Make it county uh, line. Uh, it's not making County Line. That's that's a, yeah. No, I think that movie's come up before, hasn't it, Griff? Almost definitely. Yeah. Texas
2: Chainsaw Massacre.
1: <laughs> it's not Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's 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 okay. Here's here's the thing. Yeah, it is the screen debut of OJ Simpson. Ah, huh. the it has two titles. It had two different titles. It also stars Lee Marvin and Richard Burton. If that helps.
2: Yes, it's, like Klansmen.
1: There you go. It's okay. called Klansman. Wow. It also had the alternate title of Burning Cross. It's like a, you know, racist murder in the South movie.
2: Yes. I saw it. I saw it as Klansman. I saw it. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. So that's it. But the O.J. Simpson thing, I feel like that's the biggest
0: yeah. fact about it. That's right. God. Dire- directed by Terrence Young, written by Sam Fuller. Correct. Wow. Uh, made, made,
1: made many, many um, James Bond movies. Other yeah. movies in the top 10, Griff, Lenny, The Godfather Part 2, The Longest Yard, The Taking of Pelham One Two Three, 3, and Airport 1975. Like, th- five other movies are just huge, big old movies yeah. from the year. Yes. Yeah.
0: Wow. It's also funny that, like, Godfather Part 2 was a box office disappointment relative to Godfather Part 1. Like, it was still a big hit, but it was, like, a major drop-off. It, it, it made a lot less money than the first one. It's true. Yeah. But then, was, you know, it, it had yeah. a long life. The, the rule of thumb for so long was a sequel will make 50% of what the last one made. And At now best. almost every sequel grows over the last film, the previous film. Right. But uh, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a hot year for, for movies, I mm-hmm. would say.
1: Taking Pelham poem 1, 2, 3, that's one of my favorite movies, obviously, discussed mm-hmm. many times on this show. Fosse, it, this is his little stopover in between two masterpieces. It's a, it's a pretty good movie. That's my take on Lenny um and that's it that's all i got for you
2: that's it all right guys well if we ever do cop if we do cop show again no oh. your character your character griff has to be obsessed with death
0: great i'm going through my lenny bruce phase. uh there's a, a great thing did what like 30 episodes overall eventually like three yeah like 24 over, right? 24 yeah. episodes yeah 24. Uh, but it was, a uh, for people who haven't seen it, it was like a mockumentary about Colin trying to make his own Law and order style cop show, looking for the Richard Belzer crossover. And I play a megalomaniac uh, NYU graduate who's been hired on for director and is trying to fight for control as O'Tor. And every episode just has a, a Bananas guest star. I mean, it was like Seinfeld and Amy Schumer and Steve Buscemi and Michael Che, Danny Aiello. You got such incredible people in on that. Yeah, Gaffigan. I'm trying. It, the it's, list goes it's on so and on. And J.D. Amato worked on it, right? J.D. Amato was the director. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes director. Good friend. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I highly recommend people watch it. And uh, people should watch. Uh, several of your shows are on Netflix now. They should uh
2: watch. Just watch New York Story.
0: That's my favorite. I look. I am. I am biased because I'm a New Yorker. But it is just like you breaking down the sort of the the semiotics of New York City. This like anthropological yeah, yeah. study of how we all coexist with each other that is just like so dead. I saw it like three times, Colin. Oh, uh, it, was, it was so great. I'm always excited to see what you do next. I mean, we were talking about this right before uh, we were recording, uh, working on new stuff. But it is that thing with you where I feel like you are able to make really transient observations. But you also are funny. <laughs> like you are not self-indulgent. You can make these larger shows that have larger themes and ideas and and observations and everything, but there's also a joke every 15 seconds that is earned.
2: Thanks, yeah, because uh, that's a good thing about working at the clubs too, because I work those shows out in the club, and then so but you can't you can't lose them, like you said, they're drinking, they'll space <laughs> out. You have to keep them by being yeah. joke, joke, joke. So it's good training, you know.
0: Yeah, and I I don't mean to damage your reputation, and 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 uh. Uh, destroy your, your carefully honed persona by saying this on mic, but you you truly are one of the nicest people I've ever worked with in show business.
2: No, nah, same to you, same
0: back. It, it, you, you, are, you are such a, a gentleman and so it's such a kind, supportive person. I really appreciate you doing the, the, no, the
2: podcast. No, you're, you're amazing. People still bring it up all the time. You, they always go, who is that director? Well, they know you from The Tick, but they're like, that guy's amazing. They love you so much. You were so brilliant on that show. It's Damn such it. a fun show. Damn it.
0: Yeah. Ah, all right. We'll revive it. We'll revive right. it. Take, some it take us out, Griff. Take us out. Uh, thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media and helping produce the show. Uh, AJ McKeon and, uh, Alex Barron for editing. Uh, Thank you to J.J. Birch for our research, Joe Bone, Pat Reynolds for our artwork, Lane Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song. You can go to blankcheckpod.com for links to real nerdy shit, including our Patreon, Blank Check Special Features, where we are doing franchises, and we're getting ready to go through the uh, the Roger Moore Bond movie, speaking of Terrence Young. Did he do any of the Moors, or did he only do Connery's?
1: No, I think he only did. He did like Dr. No, and from russia with love and thunderball yeah he only did connery's yeah
0: but but uh uh check that out colin thank you again for coming on thanks for having me good to see you thanks david gentleman and a scholar uh tune in next week for i'm i'm just gonna say it right uh yeah say it you won't jinx it tune in next week for all that jazz with special guest lin-manuel miranda yeah excited to do that Yeah. Uh, and I when I when I texted Colin to ask him to do this, I said, please do us this favor because the ratings are going to crash the episode after yours. We need someone big to come on and talk about Lenny.
2: <laughs>
0: that episode's already a write off for us. We can't sell any advertising on that one. No one wants to touch it. Uh, and as always, I, I'm not shitting you next week. Lin-Manuel Miranda is going to be on this podcast.